welcome to the Immigration Advocates Network podcast. My name is Brittany Long, and I am the Outreach Coordinator and AmeriCorps Vista at Immigration Advocates Network. Today, I'll be interviewing Emily DiMatteo and Mia Ives Rubley. Emily is the Policy Analysis for the Disability Justice Initiative at American Progress. Prior to this role, she worked on various disability policy topics as a disability rights intern at Human Rights Watch and fellow at the ARC of the United States. Mia is the director for the Disability Justice Initiative at American Progress. Prior to coming to American Progress, she advocated for disability justice and inclusion at nonprofit organizations and businesses across the United States. They recently released a report titled The ADA at 32, Understanding the Rights of Disabled Asylum Seekers with their colleague, Trin Trong. Emily and Mia have graciously agreed to come on the podcast and talk about the issues immigrants with disabilities face. Welcome, Emily and Mia. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. We're really excited to be here. Thank you for being here. To start off, could you give us a brief overview of who you are and what you do at CAP? This is Mia Ives Rubley. I am the director for the Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress. My job basically is to um, help bring sort of a a disability justice lens to a wide variety of public, normally federal, but sometimes we look at state policies and ensure that we take disability into account. One of the things that we often say is disability impacts everything. And so what we like to do is try and figure out what is the disability angle in this policy. And this is Emily. I am a policy analyst working on Mia's team. And just to echo what Mia said, I think something that's really unique about the Disability Justice Initiative and CAP overall is that we take an intersectional approach to these policy issues. So understanding how disability intersects with health or immigration policy, like we'll talk about today, um, poverty. So just trying to um, apply this lens across a wide range of policies and just understand that, that all of these policies affect disabled people and, and every policy is a disability policy. Um, and so a lot of the, the research side and, and analyzing these public policies um, can be strengthened when we bring a disability justice lens into the mix. Thank you both. Can you tell me about the report that you recently published? Yes, so we are super excited about this report that we published um, with our colleague Trin from our immigration team here at CAP. Um, And just to give a really brief overview, as I was mentioning with the intersectional approach, I think one intersection that we don't see researched or discussed a lot um, is the intersection of disability and immigration or disability and citizenship. Um, And so we really wanted to explore this intersection in the context of disabled asylum seekers, whether these are people who are already in the United States or are uh, seeking to cross the border um, into the U.S. and thinking about how this is a really vulnerable group that is not often um, considered in the larger context of both uh, disability rights and also immigration rights. Um, And the interesting thing is, well, not interesting to those of us that that work in disability policy since we're always advocating for for increased data, but we know so little about this intersection and this population. We know that in 2020 alone, there were 
about 12 million people that were forcibly displaced from their countries. And this is probably an undercount since a lot of, of data and research does not accurately capture disabled people. So this is a really big population and we really don't know that much about who they are, how they're being treated on U.S. soil, and what protections and, and rights they have. And unfortunately, the U.S. immigration system has not historically treated disabled people very well. We've seen this through things like eugenics and, and medical inspections at, at Ellis Island and also just concepts like public charge, where if people access public benefits, then that could be factored into considerations of if they're able to be admitted into the US or even deported. And so in this report, we really explored disability-based persecution. So either like violence or, or, or um, negative treatment of disabled people um, and how protections like the American uh, Americans with Disabilities Act and, and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, uh, basically pre-existing U.S. civil rights protections that protect disabled people, also protect disabled non-citizens. And so bringing these two issues into conversation with each other, our goal was to really just make it clear to, to policymakers and, and other organizations that disabled people in the U.S., no matter what their citizenship status is, are a protected class of people. And because they often experience this targeted discrimination, they are also guaranteed rights and protections in the U.S., even if they are not a citizen. Thank you so much. I'm really so thankful that you put that all together. Such a valuable resource for us to have and to use to advocate. So the report is about those with disabilities. So what is considered a disability? Oh, that's a big question that you ask. Um, disability, the definition has sort of changed throughout history, I think. Uh, but it's always been sort of tied to this medical model uh, or, or understanding, and it's been connected to sort of an individual's worthiness. And what I mean by the medical model, I mean that the, the basic definition is a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. Basically, what the thing, what it means is, is that it is looking at an individual's deficit and looking at sort of the things that are wrong with the individual, which means that oftentimes we don't sort of prioritize those individuals. Now, there's other models that have come into play through a lot of pushing from the disability community, and that includes something that we like to call the structural model, which basically says that the understanding of disability needs to change because disability comes out of the fact that society is structured in such a way that it creates barriers for specific people, disabling them and making it more difficult for them to be fully included within their own communities. So what that actually means is that it gives a better understanding that the deficit isn't in the individual, but actually in the structure of society. And it means that we can actually make broader policy changes to address these issues and decrease the barriers that individuals face on a daily basis. Now there's another model, a third model of disability that is basically the identity model. And that means that an individual has a certain sense of self that includes one's 
disability and feelings of connection to or solidarity with the disability community. So they see their disability as sort of a an identity and they see it as a way to better understand their place in society and their sort of perspectives and awareness of the situations that they face. And why I talk about this so often is because it helps us better understand how we address these issues, right? And it helps us better understand how we improve certain policies. Because if we're talking about the medical model, we're talking about technically making changes to an individual on an individual basis, which means that we're not addressing wider issues and patterns that are happening in society. Emily, you mentioned while you were talking about Section 504. What is Section 504? And also, what is the ADA? Yes, I will give a really brief overview, and then I will also pass it on to, to Mia to add a little bit more context. So Section 504 is part of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. This was actually the precursor to the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is the ADA for short. So Section 504, we usually just call Section 504 and then the ADA for short. So just to explain those acronyms. And so this was basically the, the right to non-discrimination for disabled people in the U.S. And so when we think about this in the context of, of immigration, this applies to disabled people that are in immigration uh, detention centers on U.S. soil. This can mean that people can get a reasonable accommodation because of their disability, which means that they can have an accommodation that would grant them, for example, if they are deaf, they would have an interpreter and hearing aids if they if they wish to have hearing aids. It also prevents against discrimination, like placing disabled people in solitary confinement or isolation. Um, so these are the rights that are under uh, Section 504 for, for non-discrimination. And the ADA was passed in, in 1990 and builds off of that. Um, so we actually just, just celebrated the 32nd anniversary um, this year. And so that's actually part of sort of the, the touch point for, for our report. And so just building off of this, these protections and the right to non-discrimination, specifically civil rights for disabled people in the U.S. And so this can cover anything from, from accessible transportation to accommodations and employment. And something that's interesting about the ADA, which Mia covered the, the definition of disability a little bit earlier, is that the ADA also protects people who are perceived to have a disability. So you don't necessarily have to have a disability diagnosis, like a certification from a doctor or a note that says you have X disability. The ADA protects you if you're quote unquote perceived to have a disability. So this is a really powerful civil rights protection against non-discrimination and the ADA and 504 can be used together. They're, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. And something that's a little bit more complicated about the ADA in this context is that the ADA could apply to detention centers if they are privately run but contracted by states or uh, local level counties for, for detention facilities. And so it's not just that private facilities are completely off the hook, it's that they are also subjected to this, this uh, grounds of non-discrimination for disabled people that are in their detention. And so these are two really powerful disability civil rights protections that, that protect, like we mentioned before, both people that are citizens of the U.S. and also those who aren't. 
Yes. So I wanted to add just a little bit more to that, which is that when we started talking with organizations on the ground who were doing a lot of the work and, you know, bringing up legal cases, the main thing that we heard from them was that they were utilizing the Section 504 and, and addressing concerns around, you know, the lack of of accommodations to to immigrants who were seeking asylum ship. And we wanted to figure out sort of one, what were those issues? And then two, how can we sort of provide extra protections or think of innovative ways that we can utilize the law to protect more individuals? And one of the ways that we figured out was that we found out that the ADA definitely protects undocumented undocumented immigrants. And so we wanted to delve further in there and we had multiple conversations with legal experts and folks just across the country about sort of what what were those circumstances that we could utilize the ADA as as an extra protection, an extra layer of protection for individuals. And so, you know, we wanted we we found out that there were a couple of different examples. One was what what Emily was talking about, which was in specific detention centers that are run by or funded by the state governments. ICE often contracts to state and local uh, detention centers. And so individuals who are uh, in those detention centers can get extra protections under the ADA. Their lawyers can, can utilize that law. But we also found that individuals could also utilize those protections in order to make sure that they received fair counsel from legal representatives. So we know that a lot of individuals don't receive, you know, legal support or or fair legal support because of lack of accessibility or, or, or actual fear of working with these individuals who may not communicate in, in the ways that they're used to or may not be able to ambulate in ways that they're used to. And one of the things that that some of the the folks that we talked to uh, were very specific about was that that these individuals needed to understand that the ADA protected their ability to receive fair and equitable counsel from from these legal firms and and organizations. So that was another area that we were like, oh, that's that's a great example of where we haven't really thought about how to ensure that people receive extra protections was in the legal process around that. And then lastly was around sort of the extreme detention, sort of uh, solitary confinement and thinking about how individuals are often confined unfairly because of their disability. You know, we know that individuals who are of LGBTQ status also get confined because of their sort of sexual orientation or or gender identity. And so when we were looking at the ADA, we realized that the Olmstead Act 
likely could protect those individuals because it states that these individuals can't be unfairly contained outside of their communities, even if they state that it's for, quote unquote, their protection, right? So those were the, the areas that we we really tried to dig into to figure out how the ADA could provide extra protection for asylum seekers. What are some of the unique challenges and obstacles immigrants with disabilities are facing currently? Yeah, so this is another um, complicated question because, you know, as, as Mia was discussing a little bit earlier, I think it's important to remember the wide spectrum of disability. And so I'm thinking about the, the challenges and obstacles that disabled people face. Someone with a mobility disability or physical disability, for example, is going to face potentially a different set of barriers related to the physical environment that they're in as they're attempting to seek asylum or also in detention facilities compared to someone, for example, with like a mental health disability. I think it's it's important uh, as we have this, this conversation and also for practitioners and, and people in the field to just remember that disability is is not a monolith and, and there are gonna be different barriers that each individual, even people with the same disability might face uh, as they're seeking asylum. But just to to start a little bit from from the beginning too, I think, when people are, are seeking asylum, they're usually fleeing like war, violence, persecution. And so disabled people are part of these groups. Um, they're also, you know, seeking asylum, maybe potentially because of persecution based on their disability. And so, for example, if there are, are humanitarian crises, we have seen that disabled people are often left behind uh, during evacuations or, or support to get people across the border. Um, one example that we're unfortunately seeing right now is the the war in in Ukraine and how um, a lot of disabled people and and especially children, um, as has been reported by one uh, great organization on the ground, Disability Rights International, reporting also and alongside other groups like on the ground in Ukraine, that disabled children have been either left behind completely in institutions as their less disabled or not disabled peers have been evacuated and are left to experience the conditions during such crisis like war. But we also know that when people are are stuck in their countries, even if it's not in a time of war or or violence, but are subject to to disability-based persecution, This could be anything from being institutionalized, like in a psychiatric facility or in an institution for disabled people where we've seen, for example, in Mexico and in various other countries that disabled people are more often institutionalized than they are able to live in the community. And so they could be subjected to anything from from forced sterilization in these institutions to forced psychosurgery, forced, you know, administering of psychotropic drugs and other medications in these institutions and and for children with disabilities also being forced to be in you know violent orphanages um, that have high death rates for for these children so even uh, when there are not active crises like a war there are there are definitely issues with disability-based persecution that people might be um, escaping from. So starting in the country, there are a ton of barriers, but then also even as someone decides to leave their country, there can be physical accessibility concerns as they're trying to cross the border. So we've seen, you know, during travel to the U.S., there are 
just not many safe migration pathways. And so people might be attacked by gangs or, or federal police. They can be treated badly by smugglers or be in road accidents as they're trying to reach the U.S. And then once they arrive in the U.S. and are in detention facilities, oftentimes have extreme PTSD and trauma from the journey that they that they encountered. So even if they had a disability, potentially or not during the travel, their existing dis existing disability could be exacerbated because of the process of, of reaching the U.S. or they could acquire new disabilities as well. And then that provides a you know whole host of new problems as they're in detention facilities dealing with potentially new either physical or mental health disabilities and require potentially new accommodations or, or new treatment that they were not receiving or didn't have to receive in their home country. So it's such a wide range. And I think it's, you know, thinking about it in those those three areas of, of in their country um, and then during the transit. And then once they arrive in the U.S., there are definitely, you know, a lot of very unique challenges to disabled people, just as there are challenges for, for all the asylum seekers. Emily, you briefly mentioned children with disabilities. So Mia, I was hoping you could kind of speak on maybe some unique challenges or obstacles that immigrant children with disabilities may be facing. Oh gosh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think one of the things that we need to recognize is that children are often broken away from their family unit on a pretty consistent basis as they're coming into the U.S. Oftentimes that can be due to issues with getting getting travel money together to be able to get the kid over the border. Um, this can include issues of the type of violence that they are experiencing. It can include a lot of different reasons, but there are quite a few individuals who come who are unaccompanied or who the government perceives as unaccompanied. These children are often detained and put into detention centers. A lot of these detention centers are, are actually juvenile jails. So they are being put without any sort of decision by the courts or anything like that. They're automatically put into these juvenile detention facilities. And then they go through this process where they're evaluated and sometimes it's a, oftentimes it's a, a medical evaluation or behavioral evaluation. And if they are perceived to have a specific disability, they can often be deemed a danger to other folks within the facility. And while it's a requirement for the government to put these children into the least restrictive settings, that is, what both the ADA requires and Rehab 504 requires, they are often placed in more restrictive settings. They are often put into solitary confinement or more supervised secured facilities. And what happens is, is that as that happens, they are put through more evaluations and have much longer stays and much more difficulty getting into short and long-term foster care situations or even being able to return to their family 
because those individuals often have to receive specific training and have to, you know, go through more evaluations to allow the child to come into those homes. And so what we're seeing is, is that these children basically have no rights. They're detained, put into juvenile detention centers, and then forced to go through significant evaluations and then told that because that they have a disability, they have to go into even more secure facilities and require sometimes restraints, sometimes forced medication, and sometimes even punishment for specific disabilities or behaviors that may happen. And so what we're seeing is, is that these children literally have no rights and have no ability or recourse to fight um, their current placements. Could you give some specific case examples of denials of rights? Yeah, so we can cover, um, there's been, you know, several class action lawsuits against either ICE or, or DHS or um, OOR, which is the Office of, of Refugee Resettlement, which handles the unaccompanied children, including children with disabilities. But on like a broader level, as Mia was saying, for both children and also for adults with disabilities, there can be placements in, in more restrictive settings. So that could be, you know, for children being placed in the highest restrictive uh, juvenile centers compared to foster care settings or integrated community settings where they might be released to like a family member or community member, but also for adults with disabilities, like we mentioned a little bit earlier, that could be placement in, in solitary confinement or in isolation in detention facilities more broadly. So, so this sort of unequal treatment, even though adults are not subjected to the same integration mandate of, of being in the least restrictive setting like children are. They're still, you know, under the ADA and under 504, the right to non-discrimination for your disability to be integrated in, in, in the detention facility. You know, we can talk about how maybe the detention facility shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't be in, in existence, um, but that can be another conversation. But, um, you know, I think as they're in detention, at least to not be isolated from their peers or in solitary confinement. I think another uh, thing that we see with denial of rights across the board can be the denial of, of reasonable accommodation. So we've seen examples of, of people in ICE custody who were waiting months for, for hearing aids that were requested when they entered the facility. And so that left someone who was, you know, unable to communicate with the attorney, with their attorney, but then also even existing in a detention facility without the reasonable accommodation. And that's even if someone knows that they need it and request it and just an outright denial of things like, you know, the need for a wheelchair or access to mental health care, whether that is a pre-documented, like we've been talking about disability or something that was acquired along the way. You still have the right to, to mental health care, even if you don't have, you know, a, a documented disability that you're coming with to the detention center. And then we also have seen, as Mia mentioned before, there's a great group, a disability rights group in California called Disability Rights California that's done a lot of investigating, especially into the treatment of children with disabilities in California detention centers. And they've found repeated instances uh, across the board of, of forced psychotropic drugs uh, administered to children and, and forced medication. So the, the dial, denial of rights can really run the gamut, unfortunately. And a difficult piece of this that 
that we were also discussing in our report and just thinking about more broadly is that the reason why this is such a vulnerable population too is because a lot of people don't know that they have the rights to these things. So they could be, they're coming from a different country to a new country where they're potentially not speaking the language here in the US and not able to, you know, fully receive accessible information that tells them what their rights are because they're on U.S. soil. And so I think the difficulty with the denial of rights is that a lot of times the individual might not even be equipped with the information or knowledge to know that this this is a right. They do have a you do have a right to hearing aids. You do have a right to a wheelchair. Uh, you do have a right to not be administered medicine against your will. So the difficult thing is just, you know, raising that awareness among individuals. And then also, you know, so great to be in this conversation as well to raise it for, for lawyers and practitioners that might have never worked with a, a client or person with disability before that the people do have rights to these things. And so when they're denied, I think the first step is just recognizing that they did have the right to this in the beginning and it can be such a range. So in this case, what are some, if any, types of protections do immigrants with disabilities have? It's not such a bleak picture. <laughs> there are, people do have protections. And so as we discussed a little bit in the beginning, just even from the fundamental level, like the right to seek asylum is is protected in US law. And so just starting from like the very beginning, that right is a protection. We've seen there was a case in 2000 that basically first established in the US that people with disabilities, in this specific case, it was people with serious mental illness, can be part of what's called this particular social group because they have these characteristics that are tied to their identity as being a, a person with a disability. And that brings its own set of discrimination. And so this is, you know, the, the U.S. recognizing that Obviously, under the ADA, people are a protected class. Uh, with dis people with disabilities are a protected class. And unfortunately, the immigration system has not applied this disability as a particular social group uniformly across cases. And so even though there have been cases that, the, that courts have said, yes, if you're a person with disability, you're part of this particular social group, we understand that you have unique discrimination against you, the asylum system has in the courts have not applied this to every case of people with disabilities. And so what we are trying to sort of bring into conversation in our report, you know, not being lawyers, but being policy experts and pol people that work in, in policy analysis to say, well, why can't the, the U.S. asylum system apply this sort of spirit of the ADA that people talk about, which is this like broad protections for disabled people, recognizing that there's unique discrimination against disabled people and that disabled people should be considered part of this particular social group. Um, and there are cases where people have argued for disability-based persecution. There's, you know, it's very complicated with the definition of persecution and, and what you're able to, to argue is, is the fault of the state or, you know, state, quote unquote, uh, from a different country versus versus what are potentially just like economic or political conditions in that country. But I think the main thing that, that we wanted to get across is that like we should be thinking of disabled people as this particular social group because the ADA says they are. And it doesn't matter if you're a citizen or not. Um, what matters is that you're part of this group and you have these characteristics and you are uniquely discriminated against. And so, you know, Understanding that, you know, agencies, for example, are required to create these disability access plans. And so 
there are protections and people do have rights, like we've discussed, the rights to, to reasonable accommodations. You do have the right to request, like we talked about, wheelchairs or hearing aids or um, things that are specific to, to an individual's specific needs. The tricky thing with, with the ADA and also 504 is that there's just little enforcement and oversight. And so oftentimes, if a disabled person or a disabled asylum seeker more specifically is is denied some of these rights, then they often have to go into this costly litigation to fight for these accommodations and protections that are that are guaranteed to them. So it's this really complicated environment, but but the main piece of that is that disabled people are, you know, have the right to seek asylum in the US just like non-disabled people do. And because they're disabled, they have the right to accommodations for their specific disability and that could have been you know acquired during their journey here or um, that they've had you know since they were born so just understanding that the ADA section 504 and and all of these these civil rights protections apply to people and there have been great cases that are continuing and that are ongoing litigation where groups are fighting for more enforcement of these rights and holding um, entities like like DHS and ICE accountable. So at EN, you know, we work with pro bono lawyers in the field. What should those lawyers keep in mind when working with clients with disabilities? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing is, is never assume you know what a client needs. So never assume that you can take a one quick once over of the client and think, okay, I know exactly what accommodations or or issues that are at hand. I think it's important to understand that disability is complicated and it can be invisible. And so I, I know, particularly as you know, a pro bono lawyer, you have a lot of cases. I'm sure you have to sort of flip through them pretty quickly. But it, in order to ensure that individuals get the protections that they need, get the services that they need. I think it is important to slow down just a little bit because it could eventually help the individual's case in trying to apply for asylum. So I think it's really important for pro bono lawyers to to take a step back, figure out you know, what are all the needs? Has the person gotten a medical examination if they're having an issue that is medically related? Does this individual utilize some type of assistance device? Is that device working? Has the detention center given the individual access to those those accommodations or those medical devices? And then also, is the individual able to communicate in a way that's sufficient enough to stand trial? So are there any issues the individual is having in order to be able to fully communicate their needs and their issues in an appropriate manner? And if not, figuring out creative ways to make sure that the individual is able to communicate and is able to understand everything that is going on. So that may mean trying to find an interpreter that can speak the specific language that the individual is speaking. It could mean a lot of different, you know, it could mean doing 
uh, pictograms or something like that to be able to communicate with the individual. But I think it's it's just really important to try to think as creatively as possible. And if you do see the individual is being denied basic rights, whether it's through the Rehab Act and Section 504, or if it's through things like the ADA, making sure that you submit complaints, that you address those complaints and, and, and litigate them if need be because that's the only way that we're going to help continue to expand people's rights and ensure that they're protected is by by using the law and utilizing the protections that are there to help protect not only your client, but the clients that come afterwards. And the both of you and your team, you're already doing such a great job advocating for immigrants with disabilities. And how can we do a better job? How can we be better at advocating? I think even just on a basic level, understanding that immigrants and asylum seekers and you know non-citizens can have a disability, that this intersection exists and that it exists at higher rates than we even know or, or care to collect data on. But I think a big piece is that, you know, for immigration groups or, or for people that might not have ever met a disabled person, you know, I think that the most important thing is just being willing to learn if you're if you're for example, pro bono lawyer, like ask your client what they need. You know, it's meeting people where they are and understanding like, okay, even if you've worked with someone that has a certain disability in the past, even if it's an individual that has that same disability, they might need different things in order to communicate or in order to understand information. And so I think that being open to asking questions and figuring out the best way to to serve individuals with disabilities and not being afraid to, you know, make mistakes inevitably and ask questions and just try your best. And um, the way to do that is to, to ask people exactly what they need and not just guess or not advocate and assume that somebody might need something when, in fact, if you asked them, um, they might need something completely different. And I think also recognizing and expanding our our understand, understanding of this intersection. So for example, like people with intellectual and developmental disabilities that might require plain language, which is basically just like simplified text, like very short sentences, you know, there's plain language in Spanish, there's plain language in non-English languages, there's a variety of formats where, where language access and citizenship can intersect with like things like sign language interpreters or plain language or communication devices. And so just really taking that first step to, to understand this intersection on a basic level, but then, you know, also working to to raise awareness of, of this lived experience and people with, you know, disabilities are immigrants. They are asylum seekers. They are citizens they're also non-citizens and they're the main thing is that they're they're in our country they're in detention facilities and and we should be raising awareness about the their unique challenges and discrimination that they face and where can we find more information a lot of groups that are doing really great work at this intersection even though obviously we've discussed that we need more we need more organizations working at this intersection and so you can find the disability justice initiative which is our team at the center for american progress we're on twitter at cap disability 
We're also on our website, you can find this report. It's called Crossing the Border, How Disability Civil Rights Protections Can Include Disabled Asylum Seekers. But there's also like a couple of the organizations that we mentioned, Disability Rights California, the Young Center that works specifically with, with children with disabilities and other children in detention facilities. So there's great groups out there that are working at this intersection. And so, you know, suggest you know reaching out to those organizations, reading their reports, asking for their resources, and just continuing to, to push for, for that intersection. Thank you both so much for taking the time to have this very important discussion. Um, you're a wealth of knowledge, and I really appreciate you both and your team. You're doing a wonderful job. Just thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate that disability can be brought into this conversation.